This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez, and Brian Murphy. Well, not quite exactly. Welcome to this edition of the Black and Gold Banner Red. I'm not Jeff Sharon. I'm Eric Lopez. Brian Murphy is with us. Jeff is away. He is celebrating a wedding anniversary. Uh, no truth to the rumor he wanted to dodge all the uh, negativity that's been out there, Murph, over uh, our recent UCF football game. Well, I mean, to be fair, Eric, no one really wants to talk about what happened in Memphis, but we're here to bite that bullet. That's right, because you have all the answers to all the problems we UCF has, and we look forward to hearing your solutions here coming up on this edition of the Black and Go Banner. We will talk about the UCF 50-49 to loss to Memphis. What does it mean? What moving forward as they get set to host Tulane on Saturday at 2 o'clock plus – We'll hear from Johnny Dockett, who uh, met with the media on Monday. They talked many topics. Murph was a part of that. He'll share with us as we'll get before before you know it. Uh, college basketball supposedly will be starting soon. Uh, that and uh, of course Chad Matola, UCF alum in the World Series. Murph will tell us why he's not going to be joining Drew Butera as a World Series champion. That's all coming up on this feel-good edition of the Black and Gold Banneret here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, of course, you can follow us and uh, on our podcast. Make sure you subscribe on wherever you listen to your favorite podcast devices and check out, uh, leave a, a nice note. And, uh, of course, uh, all the episodes we've had from the past. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter on UCF underscore Banneret. And, of course, like us on Facebook there as well as we post there often. Of course, Mr. Murphy is always on Twitter at Spokes underscore Murphy. I'm at Eric Lopez Elo. All right, let's get into it, Murph. You were there live in Memphis on Saturday for the another wild edition that is UCF Memphis. And a uh, certainly a game that is still stings days afterwards as far as the fan base is concerned. UCF led by 21 at one point. Uh, but could not hold on to the game. That was the most total yards combined in a UCF football game history, over, what, 1,500 yards. Memphis had over 700. Dylan Gabriel threw – what was it? 1501. 1501. 1501. It was off by a yard. Um, most ever in a UCF football game. Dylan Gabriel threw for a school record 601 yards in defeat. Uh, but yet mm. the Knights lose 50-49. to 49. There's been a lots of chatter about it. Uh, Murph, you were there in person. You got to see some history. I don't know if you were aware of this, but the 21-point uh, lead by UCF, that is the largest lead that ties the school record for largest lead uh, given up by a UCF team. Did you know that? I did not. Uh, and I guess I'm, I'm, guess I'm glad I do now because, you know, information. But, man, does that sting. Yeah, it ties the record among a couple other games, including a 2016 game between UCF and Houston in Houston, where UCF led 24 to three in the third quarter. Uh, but look, Murph, it's not been pretty. Obviously, fans are upset. Uh, a lot of people are like, "What's wrong?" Let me let, let, let me ask you, what was your thoughts? You've had a few days now to think about that game. Uh, what stands out to you there that you'll take with you from that game? And where once again, UCF with a double-digit lead. Uh, losing here in the final seconds. 
Yeah, well, obviously, you know, Dylan Gabriel wants to put everything on himself, say it was his fault and, and that he's got to do better. And I get that. But <laughs> when you put up 600 yards of, of passing offense, more than 700 total and 49 points, it's not on the offense to really do more. And sure, they had a turnover in the red zone. and People can look at that and point. But UCF kind of equaled that out earlier in the game. They had their own turnover. You know, Memphis had their own turnover. Uh, at around the five-yard line uh, early in the game. So it was kind of one-for-one one there. You know, there were some drops or some, or at least some opportunities for catches that were dropped. But the thing here is the defense, and it's 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 really the back the back seven, as it were, the two linebackers and five DBs, um, corners getting beat, and, and linebackers out of position. And, and uh, you know, one thing that's a concern for me with this team going forward is uh, we don't know – the statuses of Eric Gilliard and Eric Mitchell. Now, Eric Gilliard did not play in this game. He was in the stadium in Memphis, but he was uh, it was in sweats. Uh, he did travel, but did not play, didn't warm up. Uh, he was replaced by Tatum Bethune, who Tatum said this week that he found out on Tuesday that he would be getting the start So uh, next to Eric Mitchell. So whatever Gilliard had, whatever ailment Gilliard has, He's had it for a while, and it ruled him out quickly last week. Uh, we'll try to find out something more from Heupel on Thursday regarding his status, but Gilliard didn't play, and then Eric Mitchell got hurt uh, in the third quarter of this game, and it just so happens that when he got hurt, at the moment he got hurt, UCF was ahead, uh, I believe, tw- 35-14. And then the next play, Memphis scored a touchdown, the play after he got injured, and then it all sort of snowballed from there. Not saying that his injury was, you know, the straight the straight arrow to what happened, but it certainly didn't help that UCF was missing its top two linebackers. And then you know this team is playing a lot of young corners on the on, on the boundaries, um, or you know, or, or at least younger guys like like Corey Thornton and and uh, uh, Justin Hodges. And those guys still have a lot of room to grow, and and they're going to have some pains, growing pains too. So though, that back seven really kind of got exploited, I thought, uh, again in this game against Memphis. And um, it's something that, you know, if you're going to have these kind of injuries and opt-outs and young guys playing, it's going to happen sometimes. You just wish it wouldn't happen where it's 50 to 49. 36 points allowed in the second half. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, tough. that's a tough pill to swallow there. You mentioned the injury. I go back to even the possession before that. Remember – they were UCF was driving. Otis Smith, uh, Otis Anderson, takes the mm-hmm. wild night snap and fumbles the ball. Well, and, there's, well. and there's been criticism, but I remember you tweeted at that moment, and I think you and I were on the same page. We thought that was a pretty significant moment there. You could just sense like, oh, that could really change the momentum. Some fans have been critical of the why do you do a wild night, which you know, and we'll get into the whole coaching stuff. You know, I feel like sometimes. Uh, we kind of want it both ways, you know. I, you know, Josh has been criticized for being too conservative at times, but and you know, and now he runs this trick play, if you will, quote unquote, a wild night. He's being criticized because why are you running a wild night? I don't think, like, it. it I, I don't know how you can blame the call there for Otis fumbling the yeah. football, like especially if people watch the play from the. There was a missed block. Uh, the reason why Otis fumbles, there was a Memphis defender that drilled him and caused the fumble, I don't think because you handed off to him would have made a difference, to be honest. he was, And so I thought that was the biggest turning point of the game because up until that point, 
I don't think anybody felt like, oh, Memphis can't stop, you know, they couldn't stop them at that point. And you just thought UCF would just keep scoring. And I thought that was almost like, oh, you just gave Memphis some life and some momentum there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, obviously, you know, we know, everyone knows and, and needs to be more aware of the fact that sports criticism and sports writing in general is, you know, largely based off of results. And that's how we craft narratives. We craft narratives because things happen, but we should not overlook the process that goes into those results. Uh, if the process is good, that doesn't mean that whatever result, if the result is bad, that the process was bad. Uh, and so giving Otis Anderson a direct snap from the three or whatever it was, isn't a bad call. It's not like Otis Anderson can't run with the ball, can't catch the ball out of the, out of a, out of a quarterback position, like behind center. Like, he should have no problem dealing with that. He fumbles. They lose the ball. But the, the, the point is you try to get you, – you're going to get the ball in his hands and hope, hope something good happens. Uh, I don't care what formation they line up in. That's not, a, that's not a bad call. It didn't work because he fumbled. But the call itself is not bad. The process was good. The result was bad. We shouldn't then ding the process because it, everything else was fine except for the result. Yeah, a result that – uh, was not pretty. Now let, let's get. I, I want to like kind of do this because there's been a lot of questions. People have questioned the coaching. People have questioned uh, the player talent. People have questioned like what's to blame and, and all that stuff. Uh, if you kind of broke this down into a pie, Murph, okay, and your options mm-hmm. are this is a, a percentage of this is on the coaches, a percentage of this is on the injuries slash opt outs. A percentage of this is on the players themselves not being good enough, uh, or is a percentage of this, uh, you know, you could throw something else in. How would you divide it? Well, it's two different games, right? Like, so the Tulsa game, the offense bogged down because of the defense they're facing. They really just did not have an answer for what Tulsa was doing to them defensively. And so, you know, that's one reason why that, they really lost, that game got away. Um, and, and then in this game, the offense was fine. They were able to take advantage of of some things offensively. They were able to do things they couldn't do against Tulsa. So, I, but the, I think the common thread through both losses is obviously the defense. It is it is really the big plays? Is the, you know we talk about we talked last week about the big plays that UCF gave up before the half, and then right in the third quarter that turned the game around against Tulsa, and then. You look at this game against Memphis. You said gave up nine pass plays of twenty yards or more in wow. this game, and that falls on your corners and your safeties and your and your guys either not having good technique, not having uh, being in the right position, sometimes losing out when they when they are in position to guys just making better plays. But typically, it just it, you have guys getting beat, and we saw that again in this in this game. Uh, there was a, a point early in this game where uh, it looked like Corey Thornton uh, had been benched. Uh, he actually, I think, started uh, over Zamari Maxwell. Actually, Justin Hodges started over Zamari Maxwell with Corey Thornton at the other boundary corner. And then Corey Thornton gave a couple big plays and was benched for a while. And they moved Aaron Robinson out to boundary. Uh, and then you know he had a okay, mo- he had some okay moments, but also was picked on as well. It's really across the board. These guys have been, have been picked on, uh, you know, young guys and veterans uh, on the back end. And it's really hurt this team that needs to, you know, all teams say it, but, you know, you need to limit these big plays. You can't keep, you can't keep giving up these big plays. And so 
that's going to be something that's worth watching going forward is, is this defense going to continue to be exploited, you know, deep down the field? Because Tulsa and Memphis have done that, did that consistently. Well, and, and a lot of people are critical of the secondary. But where's the pass rush, right? Isn't the pass rush the secondary's best friend? Because if you have mm-hmm. a pass rush, now all of a sudden the secondary doesn't have to cover as long. And I kind of feel like quarterbacks are having plenty of time to throw there. We saw that with Smith at Tulsa. I think we saw that with Brady White for the most part. Not to mention, an, you know, every you know when they did put pressure, there was no containment, so White would run out and make some yardage on that. Yeah. Um, and the linebacking play uh, – you know, pro football focus, which I know you follow closely, they haven't graded them very well. And some would say they haven't played. Like, I'm not sure who on this defense, when opposing teams look at them and they're saying, man, we got to worry about this guy or this guy in the front seven, like they did with a Shaquem Griffin or even a Pittman or even a Tristan Hill when he was here. Even though he wasn't starting, he you know, t- teams took notice. Who's that guy on this team that, that the opposing teams are concerned about on that front seven that, man, this guy is unblockable. we got to make sure we have two guys on this guy or whatever. It seems like there's not that guy. And as a result, the secondary, which is young, and we obviously there's been departures there, Tay Gowan opting out, uh, Bam still out with the serious injury from last year. That hurts. But you're leaving sure. a secondary out in an island here against some talented uh, skill position guys in this league, which there's plenty of them. Yeah, I should go to mention, too, that you know during the Tulsa game, it didn't help either that the, the most experienced guys you have had in that secondary, Antoine Collier and Richie Grant, were yep. both hurt late in that game. And they did make, they made it through the Memphis game, so there's no there, – you know, that's that's not an excuse for the Memphis performance. Going back to the front seven, you're kind of right. You know, we look at guys who have the potential to be the game wrecker in the front four, at least. You know, with, with Kay Tunier really getting – you know, becoming better as a player. Certainly showed that last year. Uh, Ray Charlton and Trayvon Morris-Brash – have a lot of upside as pass rushers. Josh Sheliskar, as a freshman, has made some big plays early in his career, but you would be hard-pressed to say that any of those guys have been consistent. Uh, and, you know, UCF right now is in, in the middle of the pack in the conference at uh, seven, uh, seven tackles per loss per game. And I, I know that is not what Randy Shannon wants, especially with the defense that he draws up, which is a lot of pressure – uh, wanting a guy's caught behind the line of scrimmage, he wants to get into the low double digits into the teens. And right now they're only averaging seven per game. And uh, I believe in uh, sacks, it was a um, team sacks, they are nine, they are eighth in the conference, 56th in the nation at only one and a half per game. Wow. That's yep. below average. Yep. Uh, and so that, that has been lacking. And like I say, if you give a, corner, a quarterback enough time to throw – Especially in this in this time in, in football, where most quarterbacks are dual threats and are able to run out of the pocket if if anything breaks down, um, you, you leave you, you give the quarterback too much time to either make a play happen with his arm or find a place to run and pick up a pick up a nominal gain. Um, yeah, this this is just a lot of questions to answer with this defense right now. It's you know Dylan Gabriel said it on Monday that uh, everyone has to look themselves in the mirror. And I think that's true for, yeah, certainly everybody because you lose the team. But especially for this, for this defense that has been uh, really taken advantage of. Defense ranked 74th in total yards given up defensively. Uh, they're averaging giving up over 33 points a game. Just not not pretty numbers way, at all. There's only like 76 teams playing right now. 77, <laughs> yeah. So that's near the oh, bottom, y'all. That's why it's a problem in – 
One theory out there that's been floated is when you run a no-huddle offense, uh, you're leaving your defense out to dry in the complementary football. Josh Heupel believes part of the problem is they're not playing good complementary football. You got them in some some third, third and fourth down situations and in and, and those critical situations, you got to find a way to get yourself off the field. Um, you know, sometimes we just lost a one-on-one matchup out on the perimeter. Uh, sometimes there were penalties. Uh, sometimes there were uh, assignment busts, you know, and, and um, at the end of the day, uh, we got to be collectively better uh, uh, to get off the field on that side of the ball. But it's, it's everybody. We got to play together. I said it after the game. Um, we haven't played complimentary football yet together uh, as a football team, and, and you got to do that, and that's how you win close games. All right, that was Josh Heupel from Monday talking about the, the what went wrong in the Memphis game and feeling that they're not playing complimentary football uh, on that. And, and, and I kind of here, – here's my thing, uh, and, and it's, it's a good thing Jeff's not here because him and I would probably get into an argument about this because we've gotten in an argument about uh, about the state of college football as a whole. Everybody's running no huddle. And as a result, everybody's playing these high-scoring games They're because they're trying to run 80, 90 plays, and they're trying to gas the defenses. And I personally don't think that's interesting football. He does. He enjoys that. Uh, he said that. But this is, the, this is part of the, 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 the give and take here is your defense, if you don't execute quickly offensively, if you get some three and outs, you're going to leave your defense out there and – I, the thing that kind of as great as this offense has been and everybody looks at the yards and the stats, one thing that's very interesting to me and one of the issues I have with it is they can't really adapt. Like, you know, I remember, Murph, you were there in 2017. I think one of the things that made that 2017 special is they went fast, but when they had to do a three- to four-minute drive to kill the clock, they could do it. They could do it. Mm-hmm. I don't feel this team can do that. And I think that's part of the problem, too, why they have been blowing these leads because when you have big leads, well, you, really the, the pattern, the, the, what you should be doing is slowing things down, but you can't do that because you're not executing well, so you try to go fast. But if you go fast, you're allowing the opponents possibly to get back in the game. So I do think that's part of what he is alluding to about the lack of not good complementary football, but the lack of being able to adapt and play, execute, regardless of tempo is my issue with this offensive style. Well, I mean, I don't know. Uh, we have seen UCF actually do pretty well. It's well for them. This is relative to them. But as far as like taking touchdown drives for more than three minutes, like they usually didn't, they have not done that usually all season and really for the last few years. But even against Memphis, they had four touchdown drives that took at least three minutes. And that for UCF, that is, a pretty long time. Like I said, they don't they don't usually do that. I think they had four in this game, and I believe coming in they had like five or six all season. Um, so they were actually kind of slower against Memphis, and yet and, and yet uh, you, you still end up with your result because you can't get enough enough stops on the back end. Yeah, and you have to be almost perfect offensively, basically, uh, mm-hmm. as a result of that, and you're not perfect. So all of a sudden, people will nitpick certain things about uh, people have brought up him not going forward on fourth down early in the game, which I thought was – that's kind of like the armchair quarterback, you know, like, oh, it didn't work out. We needed that kick. First of all, there's no guarantees you make the kick. Um, and I would say that you're playing field position. Memphis didn't score right after that. They punted the ball. Did you have issues with him going forward on fourth down there and passing up on the field goal the early in that game? 
No, absolutely not. I'm trying to remember the um, exact uh, – was it the fourth and sixth of the 32? Was that what it no, was? No, it was deeper for? in the red zone where there was early in the game. I mean, there was one other one I, they might have been I think you were talking about, but I'm talking about early where they passed up on a field goal. People, oh, no, he's going to oh, go. The, the, fourth and goal, the fourth and goal at the four? Yeah. Uh, I, no, I, I don't have a problem with that because, again, you're, you're, you know what this game is going to be. Yeah. I mean, even before it turns into a 50-49 to 49 game, you know, you know what kind of offense Memphis is going to bring. You know what kind of attack they have, even without Demonte Coxey, who we found out really before the game, but then was confirmed after the game that you know he had opted out before this game uh, was played. Um, so you know, field goals were not going to win win you this game. And you know, when you're UCF, I, you look at this and go like, we should we should be able to get four yards against this offense and. You know, Dylan threw a, threw a pass high and it was incomplete and, and turnover on downs. Uh, but again, I feel like that is something that, you, you know, you try to be aggressive, uh, especially in certain games where you know points are going to be all over the place. Um, so you go for six, and if it doesn't work out, then you leave them down at the four-yard line. And I, I really have no issue with that against this opponent at that situation, too. Like, if it was... If it was, you know, the fourth quarter of a two-point game, then, yeah, you're, you're kicking the field goal with, like, 30 seconds left or whatever. But in the first quarter, and in, in what you expect to be, you know, a high-scoring game, don't, don't forget, this had the highest over-under of any game last weekend at 72-73. Um, so you knew points were coming. So, yeah, going for it there was no problem. It just did again, the process should not be overshadowed by the results. Again, please remember that. Just because things don't work out, doesn't mean you have to react to them in hindsight as being bad calls. That's not how it works. No, uh, but there has been questions brought up. Can this team? Can UCF win a close game? Uh, that mm-hmm. that's been now. Uh, uh, Luke Hetrick, our friend who works at Spectrum Sports three hundred and sixty, uh, tweeted this out after the Memphis game. Knights are now two and six in one score games under Josh Heupel. They've blown double digit leads in five of the six losses. Oh. Uh, yeah. Now, I've spoken to him, and I've seen him on television when he's hosted the show. He has compared this to UConn women's basketball in that that you get into t- uh, so many blowouts that when you get in, you're involved in a close game, you don't know exactly what to do. The players don't. They're not used to it. They don't have the reps, if you will. Uh, do you buy any of that? Uh, what, what's your reaction to that, uh, what Luke Hedrick there has had to say there about the, the issues there of lo- losing those close games and blowing double-digit leads? Well, it is. I mean, I saw that Saturday night too, and it, that is maybe the most uh, the most damning stat of anything we have to say about you know not just losing these games, but losing double digit leads. Uh, and in the second half, it's just it's amazing uh, you know that those have coincided. I, I, I do think that some of this is the players, you know, sort of letting their foot off the gas a little bit, and it's but it's kind of natural. I mean, this is how we see runs happen in, in sports like basketball where you're up by a lot and you might loosen up your defense a little bit because you're up by a lot and then all of a sudden the team gets hot and all of a sudden you've got a close game again and now it's upon the other team that was ahead to sort of turn it back on and rev it back up and it's really difficult to do once you've sort of um, you know laid back a little bit. So I do think it's a little bit of that. I do think it's a little bit of UCF maybe thinking you know that you know oh you know we got it you know this has been easy we're gonna roll past these guys. You know, we're up by 20 in the third quarter. You know, we're, we're going to be good and and really not bearing down for a full 60. And and when a team starts to come back on you and you see that lead shrinking, 
you you kind of get tense uh, a little bit, and 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 then you you know it's, it's sort of a self fulfilling prophecy uh, of you know like uh oh you know things are going bad, and then as you think that things get worse. So I do think it's, I do think it's a little bit of that. So I think you know trying trying to ameliorate that is you have to pound it into your guys' heads. No matter what the scoreboard says, you have to play every play as as if it is the first play of the game. And look, that is completely coach speak, but there's a reason why it is. It's because that's the way coaches want those the, the, their guys to play. They want those guys to play every play as, as if it is the first play of the game or better yet, the last play of a close game. And if you can do that, then you're be, you're going to be less susceptible to blowing leads in which you're up by 10, 14, 21, etc. The thing that stings, I mentioned it earlier, this was the largest lead given up uh, for a loss in a uh, in program history 21 points the second most <laughs> Murph you happened to be there too recently it was a Tulsa game 19 points hey. that, that tied for the second biggest blowout uh, blown lead in program history it ties a few other games including uh you know uh 20 excuse me 18 points margin 23 to 5 I, I can't count uh 23 to 5 18 that's the second most Tying, among others, UCF Temple from 2016, where UCF had an 18-point lead in the third quarter there as well. Uh, so this is you – know, it stings. I mean, those losses are stings. And yet, with every issues we've discussed, UCF could have won this game with a kick. Unfortunately, that kick did not look uh, – did not go in. Uh Give me your thoughts. You were in the you were there in the press box as that was unfolding. That last drive by Dylan Gabriel. First of all, I thought they you know they did a good job of calling the timeouts while Memphis had the ball to save time. Uh, I remember when Memphis, which was a great call, that shuffle pass that they broke it. Um, yeah, I actually thought it would have been better if UCF if Memphis would have scored right there because that would have given UCF an extra 20, 30 seconds. I said that live. Uh, at we that all point. did. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> Let them, let them score. You got to let them score. Right. And then they get a couple plays. Hypo calls the timeouts. Memphis scores. They go for two. They miss. And I'm like, all right, all things considered, that's not bad. UCF drives. Uh, they go down. I feel, boy, he just missed Jalen Robinson on a pass that could have mm-hmm. sent put the ball in the 10-yard. I mean, there was a couple throws here that could have made the difference there. But then, unfortunately, Daniel Orbarski, the sophomore, misses the 40-yarder. And then, obviously, uh, uh, a bit of a – I don't know what you, how you want to describe the uh, the sidelines uh, activities afterwards. Bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a skirmish, bit of a a, a, a brouhaha. A yeah, little bit. a little bit between Quadri Jones and Daniel Orbaski uh, there in the sidelines. You asked Josh Heupel about it on Monday. Here's how that uh, was Josh's response to Brian's question. Coach, obviously, guys were frustrated after the loss. We saw uh, on the sidelines as the game was ending. There was some sort of confrontation between Quadri Jones and Daniel Obarski. Uh, what has been done to handle that situation uh, specifically? And then also, as a macro sense, what do you have to do? What do you have to say to make sure that in-team frustration doesn't carry over, doesn't leak over to other weeks? Yeah, I think you got to have competitive composure. Um, you know, that's everybody that was involved in the, um, what you were talking about there. But it's, it's us as an entire football team, too. And, and uh uh, each individual player playing with their unit, playing with, uh, with the entire group, three phases of the game, playing together, um, and understanding. You know, D- Daniel, you know, his one play that made a difference in the football game, everybody saw that late in, late in the game, but um, it's a series of one plays that make the difference in the football game. And play one is just as important as the last play of the game. 
Um, there's things that each and every one of us got to do better uh, to make that outcome be different. And uh, um, I, I think, you know, for, for us inside of the locker room, that's why you never take winning for granted. It's hard to do. And uh, um, when you're on the wrong side of it, um, you got to find a way to be a little bit better. And, and, you know, just in talking to our group, it's the urgency that you prepare with. And that gives you your best opportunity to go out and play your best football on Saturday. It's a competitive game. Not everything's going to go your way, but at least you know you've done everything uh, to, to make sure that the brother next to you is, is in the best position to be successful, too. All right, that was Josh's answer to your question, Murph. Right there, you asked a question there. Uh, what's your thoughts on that whole thing? Overblown, big deal, no deal, what little deal? What do we, what do we make of it? Uh, it's, it's probably overblown. I mean, because things like that happen when teams are frustrated. Uh, you, the one thing you don't want to see is, is that happen in public eye. Uh, I, I, I'm sure a lot, a lot of teams deal with this stuff in the locker room, on the practice field, you know, when millions of people are not watching, uh, specifically 1.9 million people, as was so perfectly laid out by you earlier this week who tuned in to watch this game and certainly watch the end of this game as well. You don't want that being aired out over uh, national airwaves. So that's not the time to handle it. And so I thought, you know, look, I don't know the exact, you know, what led all that. All we could see is that Quadri came over to, to Andrew, said something, and Andrew reacted, and, and, you know, they had to be separated. There's been talk uh, that, that Quadri, what, what, you know, uh, or the, one of the offensive linemen put his hands on Quadri before this. So all of that, all of that aside, it happens. You need to, you know, sort of just stop that there. Understand that guys can't do that on the field like that. That cannot happen. Uh, and you handle it as a team internally. Going forward, I do not expect it to be an issue. Uh, I, I, you know, I actually thought in that moment, Eric, and go back to the play here. Uh, it, I remember tweeting it out like after the after the uh, third down incompletion to Robinson. I go fourth fourth downs coming up. We'll see what they do. I totally didn't even consider they were going to kick a field goal there, <laughs> even though even though there was like you know uh, twenty seconds left and they were the they were at the twenty two and yeah forty is a feasible distance. Uh, I really thought they might actually try to go for it again to get closer because I just didn't know how much they really trust Obarski as a kicker. We know he has a huge leg. He's the, he's the guy who does the kickoffs, but I don't know how much they trust him as a kicker. And so I was kind of surprised they brought him out there, uh, even even on fourth and. To it at the, with 19 seconds left, a one-point game, um, and the fact that he missed it, I think Josh said it there. The fact that he missed it does not decide the game. Uh, I know people are like, "Well, he missed it, and that's how the game ended." So yeah, that's how they lost. Like, no, that's not how they lost. Someone please remind me that they gave up 700 yards of yeah. offense to Memphis. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, please, it's you know, the, you know, it's, again, it's, it's it's about narrative setting and things that drive me nuts about how people react to sporting events. Uh, but yeah, it, it you know it it, it it's certainly how it's how the game ended, but it's not how UCF lost. UCF lost because their defense couldn't get enough stops, and when they're up by 21 in the third quarter, you're up by 14 in the fourth quarter, you're up by 12 with five and a half minutes to play, and you can't win. That that doesn't come down to a, to a missed kick. No, but I will say, and I mentioned this on the roundtable in the preview of the Memphis game. I thought the key anytime you're playing Memphis is you got to be good on special teams. Um, and there was a couple yeah. plays here, special teams that UCF didn't execute well that could probably contributed to the loss. Forget the missed field goal. Hey, it's a 40-yarder. That happens. There was a block extra point that Memphis got. 
I know UCF got two pointers after that, but you know, you still got a block extra point. But to me, the biggest play, nobody's talked about this. When Memphis tries the onside kick and UCF yeah. recovers, Murph, there's a penalty on UCF that pushes him back, which was significant because instead of UCF starting with possession in Memphis territory, they're still starting from their own territory on the on the onside kick. And I thought that was significant because if you're starting in Memphis territory, one for you know one you're pretty close to a field goal possibility. Uh, you know there, there's a lot of you know Memphis might be more aggressive and you might break one for a score. Instead, you're you're 15 yards further back. You you got to kind of still figure out what you want to call here. And they call the pass play and the sidelines didn't work out in there. But that was a significant penalty from a field position standpoint that didn't help UCF either. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was a factor. Not that they decided again, but these small little things always add up. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, we talk all week about how, about going into this game and, and really the last few weeks, the pre-snap penalties, the post-snap penalties on the offense yeah, and, and the false starts and all that stuff. Well, this week they didn't have any false starts, and that was great. Uh, you know, that was really great. What didn't what didn't help is that they still had a ton of penalties and almost all of them came on defense or, you know, defensive players. This was a special teams penalty, but this was Kenny Tunier getting called for the personal foul on the onside kick. Now, it was his second personal foul of the game. I believe UCF had nine defensive penalties in this game, giving, you know, Memphis more chances, more opportunities to score points. And so even when UCF is able to gloss over their most glaring, you know, rash in terms of, of making, the, you know, shooting themselves in the foot with their false starts, they're still making too many penalties and hurting themselves, giving their opponents extra, extra chances. Um, and it's something that, you know, we, we've talked about for years now, and it just seems like it, it, they can't stop it. It's just, it's just <laughs> maddening. It's absolutely yeah. maddening. You know, it's funny. It was funny. Everybody's like, oh, they only had 10 penalties in the game. <laughs> That's what we're at to now. Hey, only had ten penalties. It is. It is a big improvement. It is, it is a big improvement. It is an improvement. It only lowered their penalties average to thirteen and a half per game, which is still worse <clears throat> in the NCAA. So, the Knights are two and two now on the season. And when we come back, what are the Knights now? What's left to play for? Brian will answer that question. Plus, we'll look ahead to the Tulane matchup. Then later, we'll hear from Johnny Dawkins and UCF basketball, including. We know who they're going to open the season with. We'll discuss that and much more on this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Eric Lopez alongside Brian Murphy. So the Knights now, two and two on the season. Murph, this was a team that was picked to win the league. Some had them as a trendy pick to make the playoffs. Uh, most of us here at Banneret thought they'd go undefeated. Win the league, <laughs> except Jeremy Brenner. Shout out to Jeremy Brenner. He somehow saw them not, like, losing multiple games. Um, hey, <laughs> um, So the big question now is, what is the, the the rest of the season now? What What is UCF playing for here? Two games out. New Year's Six is pretty much done. I, I don't see a New Year's Six, especially in a year like this where you have the Mountain West playing, what, six, seven games and uh, – Teams, you know, it's just it's not like a full slate of games. Let's be honest with everybody, with everybody's dealing with. So you're not going to get a New Year's Six slot with two losses. Conference championship game is kind of a lot. You need a lot of help, a lot of help, and tiebreakers and things like that. So, 
Where is what are they playing for here the rest of the way starting this Saturday with two against Tulane? Well, I'll, I'll be more I'll be more uh, certain in here. They're not going to the conference championship <laughs> game. They're certainly not going to the near six. But all that's out the, all that's out the door. We can't talk like we did all last week talking about how Memphis and UCF. This is a conference championship elimination game, and then when UCF loses try to leave the door open. Like, no, that door is slammed shut. This team is tied for eighth in the conference wow. at one and two. They've lost tiebreakers now to two teams that are ahead of them. Uh, they're not. They're not going to be in that game. Uh, so it's it's you. Know, they are the definition, unfortunately, of in this season going to be an also-ran. And I remember asking Marlon Williams about this after the game you know, where I just said, you know, this is you know kind of out of the picture now. You know, what do you guys have to do to bounce back? And I remember it. It was great. He just goes, win, and then has, like, a soft chuckle. Like, and, and, like, and, and you could hear, like, in a sense, that chuckle was a stand for, like, obviously, why would you ask that question? Obviously, we're here to win games. Um, because, you know, this is these, that's what these kids are, 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 you know, quote, unquote, bred for. These kids are, are bred to compete. And so, you know, they want to go out there and win as much as they can. Even teams that are traditionally bad want to go out and win every week. So yeah, they're not going to be, they're not going to be going to the peach bowl or fiesta or whatever. They're not going to be playing for the conference championship, but that doesn't mean this team still has its sights set on going seven and two, you know, and they're going to try to achieve that. And I think Marlon was very upfront up about saying how, yeah, it sucks. He literally said, it sucks that we're probably not going to achieve the goals we set out for. Um, but the, the the bottom line is they still want to win every game. They looked on their schedule and they're preparing and practicing and, and getting into the right mindset to go out and do that. Well, and you're and let's be honest, you also got to play for 2021. Now everybody has a year extra eligibility with everything that's been going on. I do think it's important to finish strong here, and and you could finish strong and and kind of find some answers. I I you almost I'm not saying you you treat this like spring ball but I do think you got to play some young guys you got to find some you know some answers of what you have on your roster and what you might need to do after the season for the 2021 season I mean I think this year is such a curveball that uh, it it is what it is so everybody's dealing with it it's unique I think you almost treat this like a continuation of, 20, of the beginning of 2021, and you hope you get some, you know, kind of learn more about your team, the offensive line, uh, guys get some experience, get some cohesion. You just want to play well and feel good about yourself going into 2021 and then hope at that point, hey, maybe you're cracked the top 25 preseason again. Now there's optimism again. If you struggle through this, if you lose another game or two, man, it's going to be a long, tricky deal there. From an offseason there, from a fan base standpoint, that's kind of right now agitated. Uh, so I think there is a lot to play for for the program because one of the things at Boise State, right, there's been always this comparison with Boise State and UCF is Boise State seems to win like 10 games every year. I think they've done it every year in the last two decades except a couple times. And as a result, they've built their football program. They have a brand and they get the benefit of the doubt. And UCF was starting to get some of the benefits of the doubt you don't want to take steps backwards by having a, a season that goes south, right? Do you, do you see what I'm saying with that? Yeah. Yeah, I see it. I see it a little bit. But it's not like all of a sudden it's going to be like, oh, we're going to bring in guys – like we're going to bring in guys who usually we wouldn't, you know, play a lot. And we're going to have them play a lot of minutes 
I don't see that happening. I think this team is still going to play their usual cast of characters and, and try to go out there and win games with the guys that they think can help them most win games. They're not going to start – I don't think they're going to start all of a sudden taking starters and, and longtime players off the field in an effort to give a ton of minutes no, to no, some no. other guys. Now, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm no. just saying, though, that I think as a coaching staff, by the end of the year, you kind of need to know what spots – you have to address what strengths, what are your weaknesses on your roster. Obviously, you're going to have some departures after the season, which is normal. But you kind of need to know what what is it that we could do to ride the ship here and bounce back the following year. Uh, you know, because this will be now two seasons in a row where you're going to have multiple losses. You don't win a conference championship. It's not the end of the world, but there's clearly some things to tinker here with. Yeah, but like I think they, I, they are, you can already see what you need to do in 2021 because you can see whose clocks are running out, right? Like mm-hmm. Aaron Robinson, Richie Grant, Antoine Collier, and Tay Gowan are all seniors. Obviously, Tay has, has opted out, but the rest of them are seniors too. And and, and you know three of them are red shirts, and and they're not coming back, right? Uh, you have a couple of receivers you need to you need to replace. You have a couple of defensive players in the front in the front six. You have to replace uh, guys like Eric Mitchell and, and Kenny Tunier. Um, but so you know where those gaps are going to be because you can you know when those guys are not going to have any more eligibility. I, I, you know, that's that's not very hard to figure out. Yeah, no, but I mean, like I said, they hope they hopefully they hope, who are who are the what are the, the answers to those replacing those guys? Is it on the roster or do they have to kind of bring that in from the outside the program, whether it be transfers, et cetera? But that's too right. long. I mean, I mean, really, it, it, certainly in the defensive back position, it, you are getting the t- you're, you're getting a trial by fire back there. I mean, even as Corey Thornton may struggle and, and Justin Hodges, and you know we haven't seen a whole lot of Devontae Brown lately, but those guys have been in games. Those guys have played meaningful minutes. Uh, those guys are going to continue to play meaningful minutes as well, and those guys are going to be probably better off for it because UCF does not have better options at, at, the, at the boundary corner spots right now. Uh, and that's going to leave, that leaves them with freshmen, you know, starting. Um, and so right now you're kind of going through the growing pains, but those, those are going to be the guys that carry that secondary into 2021, 2022, 2023. Uh, and you hope that this time, you know, sort of hardens them, gives them those sort of competitive calluses. Well, if there's one team that can relate to UCF right now, it's Tulane because both teams have blown double-digit leads twice this season, big leads. Tulane blew in a big lead to Navy at home and lost 27-24, then losing a big lead on a Thursday night to Houston, losing 49-31. to They're coming off a loss into SMU in overtime last Friday, 37-34. So Tulane comes in 2-3 and and 0-3 in conference play. So these two teams kind of have the similar issues there from as far as uh, not holding on to big leads. Josh Heupel said, of course, on Monday, one of the things he's worried about when it comes to Tulane is the running game. You know, they uh, they do a great job of running the football, really efficient. I think they lead the league in, in uh, rushing average per game. On the flip side of it, they do a good job with their front seven of trying to eliminate the run game as well, make it difficult to run. So uh, for us, we got to stop the run. we got to be efficient in the run game. we got to stay in manageable situations on offense. Uh, we got to be able to play with some of our tempo. Uh, you know, defensively, we got to do a great job of, of uh, eliminating the run game. 
and then their quarterback's done a really good job of scrambling uh, in some of the uh, pass downs, and we got to do a, a better job of our rush integrity and make sure we keep him bottled up. That was Josh Hypo on the Tulane running game. Uh, Murph, what concerns you? Is it the Tulane's running game? What jumps out at you as, as, as you kind of get set for Tulane to come to town? Well, they're working in a new quarterback. As Michael Pratt is a uh, true freshman, a true freshman out of Deerfield Beach, by the way. He went. Uh, uh, um, he went to. As I pull up his bio, he went to uh, Deerfield Beach High School in Boca. Um, so, that, so he's got a couple starts under his belt. Uh, you know, he's sort of the future of the program there, and you know, he's it, 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 sort of like grading on a scale for a freshman quarterback seeing his first. You know, a couple of games of action. Not everyone can be uh, Dylan Gabriel. Like, people should understand, like, UCF fans are spoiled with how Dylan Gabriel has played so well through the first season and a half of his career. Michael Pratt, you know, has played okay in these games, but his completion percentage in each of these uh, three games he's played in is under, is under 50%. He has not topped 100. He has not topped 200 passing yards in any of these games. Um, uh, he's uh, had a couple of turnovers. He had a really, really, he really had a game-deciding interception against SMU in overtime, which basically decided that game uh, against the Mustangs. The, the one thing that I think, uh, talk about the running game, the one thing that Yusef has to watch out for is is that Pratt is a mobile guy and can run out of the pocket and will scramble for yards, and we've seen Yusef have problems with that. And then the, 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 the top running back right now is Stephon Hutterson, who is kind of a unique story? A guy who's a fourth, he's a, a senior. He's been there four years, and in no other year, even though he played, he played in games. He got, you know, he participated. He did not get more than seventy carries in any of the pre- three previous seasons. Well, in uh, last week's game against SMU, he had nineteen carries for one thirty-two and a touchdown, um, and it's sort of, and he has two hundred yard games already this year. So when you look at Pratt kind of running out of the pocket. Stephon Hutterson uh, doing what he does on the ground. Yes, you do have a, a running game there that you need to be concerned about, uh, much more so than the passing game, because I just don't think as a passer right now, Pratt is there to really threaten you like deep like a, like a Brady White can. Um, so I wonder if this is kind of a game where we can see UCF's young corners try to maybe build some confidence uh, against a, you know what is a, a below-average passing game. Tulane's ranked 10th in the country in rushing offense. They average over 232 yards a game. Uh, that's going to be a challenge. That's pretty impressive by them uh, in that regard. Tulane's actually been pretty good. And interesting here, Tulane's ranked 25th against the run. UCF's ranked 21st offensively running the football. Uh, Tulane defensively kind of have some good defensive linemen guys that could, could pose some problems for UCF in the offensive line, no? Yeah, their their front their front uh, seven really is good. They have four really good linebackers. They have some experience in the defensive line. Um, you know, they have a um, a corner. Um, I'm going to try to bring up his name. I believe his first name is uh, J- oh goodness, Jalen Monroe. Jalen Monroe is the name of their corner, who sort of likes to play on an island. Um, so that's going to be fun. Like he'll be he's a very sort of confident uh, corner. Who likes to go one on one. That'll be an interesting matchup to watch. Um, but, you know, they do have some experience and some quality guys among their their top four linebackers and a few guys along the front. Yeah, the defensive line of DeAndre Williams, Patrick Johnson, 
in Cam Sample and Jeffrey Johnson, they've combined to start 118 games. So they've got a lot of experience there. Johnson's their big pass rusher. He's two and a half sacks away from being the all-time leader in sacks in that program's history. You were there in New Orleans last year when these two teams played. Uh, describe yeah. that for those that may have missed it. But that was a game where UCF, again, had control. Tulane made a late run. We mentioned the stat earlier that Luke Hedrick tweeted out that Josh Heupel under Heupel, UCF's two and six in games decided by one score or less. Well, one of those wins was the Tulane game last year. <laughs> yeah, but it, it kind of comes with an asterisk. Like, UCF had that game in hand even when that score was – even when that last touchdown was was on, was put on the board. Um, I believe – like, yeah, the final score was 34-31. But the, the Tulane scored a touchdown with like 30 seconds left. So it wasn't like they were threatening. You know, they did the onside's kick and and nothing really came of it. So, yes, UCF won a close game. But it's not like they had to withstand a, a, a two-minute drill, you know, only up by three points, and they and they held. Like, no, they gave up a late touchdown uh, and, and recovered an onside's kick. And, and that's how they won the game. Hey, a win is a win. Um, <laughs> Tulane, by I mean, obviously, obviously, Tulane had a Tulane had a different quarterback than yeah. they had uh, McMillan, the grad transfer, uh, so a grad student, so he he's gone, and uh, th- this offense is going to be uh, very hit or miss. Uh, I mean, they had they put up some great numbers against Southern Miss, uh, which was great, but this offense with Pratt right now is very sort of vanilla. Uh, it's not going to be a very high-powered downfield attack. Um, this is, you know, it, maybe maybe if you look at the over/under of 72 and a half, you know, I usually think like, well, even at that number, which right now is the highest on the slate, once again, UCF is involved in the <laughs> highest-scoring game in Vegas, according, you know, in college football. But maybe that number is too high because, uh, you know, it's it's kind of hard to see at times how Tulane can get up to 24, 30 points. Uh, but you know, again, UCF's defense. Oh boy. Well, especially I mean, you got to believe Tulane will play ball, run the football, maybe a little bit ball control, yeah. kind of like what Memphis was trying to do, where they were kind of running the ball a lot, and I think had success. And I think that's again, that's going to be a challenge for UCF. Can they slow down Tulane's running game? Uh, remains to be seen. By the way, Tulane very good special teams as well. Again, I keep bringing this up, man. Tulane third in the league in kick return average, twenty six and a half. Fourth in punt return average. Ryan Wright, their punter, leads the American 46 and a half yards. The reason I bring all that up, Murph, field position, right? Like, field position game is going to be a factor in this football game. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you would hope it doesn't come down to that. You know, UCF is favored by 19 and a half, <laughs> but they're favored by 22 or they're favored by 20 plus against Tulsa. And so <laughs> that didn't work out too well. I, um, yeah. yeah. It could, it, you know, you never know. It could come down to that. And if that's the case, then. You're going to have to make plays in all three phases, as some certain coach likes to say a lot. I do have a positive trend for you, though. Game oh. on ESPN2 will be called by Roy Philpot, Kelly Stoffer, uh, crew. And the reason I bring them up is they called last year UCF's win over Connecticut at home, the win over South Florida on Black Friday, and the Gasparilla Bowl. Huh? Huh? Brought- <laughs> so we're giving credit. Yes, to beating Connecticut and 2019 <laughs> South Florida to the announcers. And the Gasparilla so, Bowl. Don't forget the Gasparilla the Gas- Bowl. Hello, beating Marshall. And Marshall. We're the last team to beat uh, Marshall. I don't know if you've noticed. Sure. It was, <laughs> by the way, it was great. For those of you, for those of you, and probably I would assume that's 99.9% of you, 
who don't watch uh, Willie Fritz's uh, like <laughs> midweek midweek post game like pregame uh, press conferences. Yeah, he was talking about he was talking about how good the American is as a conference, and he said, you know, we had one team who here who you know wasn't doing so well, and they've left. And I just I loved it how he just. Like, <laughs> Glossed over that the America got rid of literally the worst college program in the FBS in Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, um, and as a result, you have no divisions, and some would argue that's hurt UCF because some would say UCF played yes. in the softer side of the division in the East that does not exist anymore. Um, there's no, there's no doubt that that has hurt UCF. There's, there's no doubt. Well, we're, we'll remember that when we UConn comes to town next year, and if if UConn still has football by then, who knows? By the way, Eric, do you want to make your pitch for uh, why Memphis and UCF have to play every year? I know you've been very vocal about. Okay, that. so yeah, so if you're th- that game fr- from the league standpoint is your marquee game right now in the league. Like every time they play, there's a lot of points, a lot of drop back and forth, wild turns in the games. That's your premier game. Like every league has a premier game. You know, whether it be the Big Ten, it's usually Ohio State, Michigan, or Ohio State, Penn State, for example. Uh, the Big Twelve, it's mm-hmm. Oklahoma, Texas. Uh, the Pac Twelve, what is it? What's the what's been the marquee game? Oregon, Stanford, recently. I know USC, USC, uh, UCLA is the traditional uh, game. UCLA, USC for tradition. Right, but like Oregon, Stanford's been a big game in recent years um, in yeah. that league. ACC, it, it was Clemson, Florida State for a long time. We'll see if it gets back to that. Uh, among others, and I think for the American, this is one that you could build around because I think these two programs will be contenders. They're very similar uh, in success. They have a lot of talent on the rosters. Um, so to me, that's a game that should be marquee every year. Like I think Memphis is scheduled to come here next year. That should be, again, another ABC game. Now, I know the TV numbers, you mentioned it. I wrote about it on Black and Go Banner at 1.9 million down uh, to what it was a couple years ago, at 2.9, they lost head to head. You know, Notre Dame, Louisville, they like got three million. I am surprised it didn't get more than 1.9. I thought it'd be around two and a half, but uh, I still think it was a fun game. And if you're the American, it's a game you could showcase in football because they need rivalries. That's this league is only seven yeah. years old, and part of the issue is they've kind of tried to build this around the War and I four UCF USF, but outside of 2017. From a non-UCF partisan standpoint, it's been kind of a dud, right? Like, it really hasn't lived up to it. This game has. This game has, has lived up to it and has had a lot at stake. So I think UCF-Memphis is a rivalry now. I really do, especially with the way those games have ended. And props to them for winning the game. I know we've been very negative on the what's wrong with UCF, but sometimes, you know, the other team also makes plays too. And you could argue that Memphis was due, you, you could argue Memphis was due for one of these after the last three meetings between these two teams where the ball bounced UCF's way. Maybe Memphis was just due for one. I know people don't want to hear that. In fact, somebody on Twitter told me to go to hell. So <laughs> when I said that, so hey, you know, it is what it is. Um, but you know, that's that's it is what I thought it was fun game for the league, and I think this should be your marquee game. Uh, Florida LSU every year plays crossover games in the SEC is another example, So, uh, among others. So I, I think this game should be marquee. Probably both programs would say, no, we'd rather play somebody else. I understand that. But, I mean, you know. the last four meetings now, you've had margins of victory of 7-1-15, uh, which was still a crazy game, yeah. and, and won. And in three of those games, the, the, the total points scored was – 99 or higher or excuse me 97 yeah. higher 
Uh, and I know people, some people don't like that. I'm not a huge fan of that kind of stuff, but that draws eyeballs. You you bring two teams together that score in the 50s. Uh, well, and that, two, that and, and, yeah, two scoring games and TV markets too. Memphis, the local rating in Memphis was eight and a half for this game. It was the number one market for this game, not Orlando. It was Memphis. Yeah, teams that are teams that are one very very entertaining to watch. Two, um, they 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 have met on high stages with a lot on the line, which sort of breeds contempt. Uh, and, and I think you see there's a bit of a rivalry going here with these two teams. Uh, three. Both programs have been been uniquely successful in the past three or four years. I mean, I know people are like, you know, well, UCF dropped off last year. Yeah, well, guess who ended up winning the conference while UCF was in the Gasparilla Bowl? Um, and so now you've got these two programs who are the cream of the crop of the conference. Yes, they might be put in, in, in different divisions once the divisions come back again. But because of all of those factors – don't you, you, you're right. You, you want to see them match up every single year. I will gladly sacrifice a game against Temple, and I'm sure Memphis will gladly sacrifice a game against Tulsa or whatever to have this one on the calendar. It's just good for the league. And I know some fans – some and, and that's one of the things, too, that we got to – from a UCF fan standpoint – you got to root for the league to get that New Year's six lock. Just because you're out of it doesn't mean that you could just. You still, I think you got to root for the league to get New Year's six. If somebody else gets in, whether it be SMU, Cincinnati, whatever, that's good for SM, the league. SM, SMU baby, me and you, Eric. Our Mustangs, there. our Mustangs. Big game this Saturday, by the way. Cincinnati at SMU, nine o'clock kick on the Deuce. That's a big game, huge, huge game. That's a game uh that's the yeah. game of the weekend as far as the um the conference is concerned there um of course cincinnati ucf plays cincinnati they do not play smu but the winner of that game cincinnati smu probably becomes the front runner for the league at least to get a slot in that championship and who knows that could be a preview of the championship game although uh memphis is still in it and then tulsa a team we've seen they'll play south florida uh on friday in tampa so we'll see how they do there memphis will host uh temple but uh, it, it's that's the thing, man. I want to see the league do well, and I think UCF playing Memphis is never a bad thing from a league standpoint and from a television standpoint. And uh, remember, this game was supposed to be a Friday night game. I think it would have drawn a good number on a Friday night. As it is, it did well on ABC, and you got an ABC exposure. I'm not sure how many games in the league would have gotten that slot otherwise. Clearly not Cincinnati and SMU. No, you're a good so, point. A uh, couple quick things. Uh, we mentioned the, the slate in the league, uh, one of the guys that led UCF to a couple of those wins against Memphis, in particular in 17 and 18, was Mackenzie Milton, Murph, who we hear oh, from. Yeah? yeah, you remember him? He's, he's kind of a What's popular. What's he up to? Well, you What's know, he doing? <laughs> I heard he's trying to play some football again. And, uh, Mike, and apparently uh, he's in the right track, and he actually spoke to the media this week. Well, one media person specifically – Andrea Adelson, our friend from ESPN. You know, I went to high school with Andrea Adelson. I, 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 I okay. I, I feel like that's the tenth time I've heard that. Okay. That's so me. you're saying you're saying <laughs> I brought it up? Well, I got to brag. She's had a much success, more successful career than I have, rightfully so. Rightfully Eric, so. Eric, you're very, you're very glad for your for your alumni. My friend, yes. So she got uh, Mackenzie Milton one on one for ESPN.com. Couple of headlines there, Merv. Obviously. Uh, talking about him now running the scout team, that he approached the coaching staff with that idea because he wanted to get some live reps. 
Um, that was one that kind of stood out, I think, in the headlines over there. Where, of course, I wrote the recap of that interview on BlackAndGoBanner.com. What stood out to you about that interview? The, the, the top line for me is that his surgeon in Minnesota told him, you'll be able to play football again. And, uh, and, and that, that is it. That's all I really need to know because for me, and I don't believe, I don't believe that just means like he'll be able to run a scout team and practice. Like, no, his surgeon who has been through everything with his leg has told him, you will be able to play football, you know, as football is intended, you know, with live snaps, live action against, uh, you know, defenders coming at you. Uh, he's been given the green light there from his doctor not not now, but he's saying down the road he'll be able to do that, and uh, that is that is always the top line takeaway. That what we thought was never going to happen, uh, and then has been increasingly more probable, seems inevitable at this point um, because McKenzie's own doctor says so. That's an amazing statement that it's going to happen. I mean, that's crazy. Um, who knows when that'll be, but. You know, that could be – Murph, is that like the biggest storyline One of the uh, from a national standpoint now the rest of the year is like, hey, does Milton pop in for a game this year at UCF? That might be – we know that's going to grab headlines, clearly. Oh, yeah, it's going to be one of the biggest stories in sports. That's not even – that's not hyperbole. Uh, I mean, you know, when TMZ is covering <laughs> this interview that, that Mackenzie Milton did with Andrea Adelson, uh, it's, a big, it's, a, it's, it's a big national deal – Outside of just Orlando or Florida or even college football, like this is a this is a huge sports story um, on on par with Alex Smith coming back for with the Washington football team, and and McKenzie and Alex Smith have been in have been in contact throughout the past year plus, um, and, and uh, so it, this is going to be a huge deal. And you're probably right with with everything else as far as the goals and stuff and what they have to play for, like. Well, one thing we have to look one thing we can look forward to is the possibility, the possibility of Mackenzie Milton actually coming onto the field this season in full gear, full pads, and taking a snap. Now, I have no idea what's going to happen, whether it's a knee or whatever, but if he's eligible to play in a game, hell, if if you see him in pregame warm-ups fully suited out. Uh, it's gonna you're gonna get some shivers. It's just it's gonna be oh, it's gonna be it'll uh, explode, uh, right? I mean, there was even people on Twitter were speculating about him traveling to Memphis and what could happen. I mean, people are kind of, I mean, it, it's a fascinating. People are interested here, and uh, you're right. If we get word, oh man, he's throwing passing pads. But the thing about do you think hypothetically, if he were to be able to clear to play in a game, I think we both agree it'll be probably more than likely. Take you know, hand the ball off, maybe some a quick pass, nothing too crazy, right? Would we agree with that? If yeah. you get to that, do you believe it yeah. will? Do you think it happens yeah. at home? Uh, because to do it, you want to do it in front of the home uh, base there, or do you think that it doesn't matter if it's home or away? No, it happens at home. It happens at home. Do you think it's happily at home? Okay. Because I've said on the record, I've said that if he does play this year, it'll be in Tampa, which is kind of the full circle narrative, right? Like, oh my, where he got hurt and two years later he's taking snaps there again. But you don't buy that. You like the, you like the symmetry, the sort of poeticism of all of that, how yeah. it comes yeah. together. Yeah, that's what I'm going with. I might not be right, yeah, but, you know. No, sure. But, yeah, if I had to bet, I would say, no, his first snap comes at home, even in front of a reduced crowd. Uh, they still want him to take that first snap with that with all of the crowd really at his back. 
going full throat, um, you know, in support of his return. Well, that'll be an unbelievable moment, and hopefully. Uh, but the good news is, either way, whether he plays a snap or not this year, things are going in the right direction for him, and that's huge. Uh, and awesome, awesome story. Encourage you to re- check out Andrea's article there, and uh, we kind of give you the link to that on blackandgobanneret.com. Uh, when we come back, it's almost time for college basketball. Johnny Dawkins spoke to the media. What did Murph learn? Take away from that media session. Plus, a UCF alum trying to bring home a World Series title. Will he be able to do it? Murph will give us that answer next. You're listening to the Black and Go Banneret Podcast. We're going to miss Colin, uh, you know, on and off the court. Uh, you know, he's a great personality. Uh, you know, love being around his teammates. We love being around him. And so it's unfortunate. But, uh, you know, because of HIPAA, I can't really go into any specifics. It's not, it's not COVID-related. And uh, so that's, I can just leave it at that. But, uh, you know, he's going to be fine. And, and you know, we're, we're rooting for Colin in every which way because uh, he has a bright future, whether it's in basketball or without. That was Johnny Dawkins on Monday. Media availability with talking about Colin Smith, obviously, who will not be uh, playing this basketball season. This is the Black and Go Banneret uh, podcast. Eric Lopez alongside Brian Murphy. Jeff's out uh, celebrating a uh, wedding anniversary. Uh, congrats to them and the staff there for, uh, first of all, staff for putting up with him for a long time. That's impressive. So she deserves it. Right? There you go. Uh, we deserve some basketball news, right? Murph, college hoops around the corner. And that Johnny Dawkins, first time he's spoken to the media since when? It's been a while, right? Like, what was the last time we've heard from Johnny? I talked to Johnny about about a week after we got back from Fort Worth. So I, I had last talked to Johnny wow. uh, since in, in, like, late March. I know, I know he did an interview with the Orlando Sentinel uh, a few months ago, but really he has not done, like, an interview – with the mass media, with, with the with the scrum, as it were, or really any of the top outlets in Orlando, it was probably since I don't know July. Yeah, probably right there. Yeah, it, that that sounds about right. And and what a unique circumstances. You know, normally right now we'd be counting down to basketball season, but it, with everything that's going on, college basketball got pushed back. The season for college basketball won't start until Thanksgiving weekend instead of early November, like it normally is. So it's kind of unique. What? What, what, what was your takeaway from uh, hearing from Coach Dawkins? How is he doing with these unique circumstances, which uh, I would imagine has to be so unique just in general, just dealing with reshuffling the schedule, with, with, with dealing with COVID? Uh, and I know there was a lot of different topics you guys hit up on with him. Yeah, well, as far as all the basketball stuff goes, you know, it's just sort of it's, – it's all sort of a feeling out process. It's all very odd. You know, he mentioned how – you know, never this late in the year do you still not know what your entire schedule looks like. And UCF does not know what their entire schedule looks like uh, right now. Uh, and so it's it's odd for Johnny Dawkins to be here in late October and not knowing. I mean, they haven't they don't start you know really they don't start preseason practice here for a little bit. We're still more than four weeks away from uh, the first game of the year. Um, and, and so it's it's just sort of like well wh- you know we never we never done this before. What's what what's this going to be like? Um, he's talked about, you know, you got to try to educate your players on doing the, the doing the right thing and, and following all the rules, all the guidelines and protocols. And the players have done a good job of that. I, I will say a lot of the reason, and I, I had asked for Johnny, I had, I wanted to talk to Johnny for a while. 
Um, and I, I really, you know, besides the basketball stuff, I really wanted to talk to him about um, about the the social issues, uh, voting, the the, uh, the protests that have gone on across America. Because Johnny's been very outspoken. You know, Johnny doesn't say a whole lot on social media, but certainly, uh, you know, back in June, uh, after after the killing of George Floyd, he put out a, a really aggressive statement, a really emotional statement, I should say, about you know how angry he was uh, at seeing this yet again, and, and how it you know we need to be be better than this. And um, I, I thought you know him talking about the young people of America, how they've sort of risen up. Um, to protest and speak out against the ills in America, you know, has been really heartening for him to see. He said, you know, uh, I don't care if you're a red state, blue state, whatever. It doesn't matter to me. I think everyone, I think everyone, what everyone wants in this country to be the best it can be. be. Uh, and if we're not striving for that, then where are we going to go? And he talked about how when he was a young kid growing up in the 60s, obviously a very tumultuous period in America, and he goes, you know, it's sad that we have to be sort of reliving that again 50, 60 years later. Um, but he is very sort of um, – he's, he's just very um, um, sort of filled with, with joy and I, I guess uh, just glad to see so many people that are out there speaking their voice. And that's really why I want to talk to Johnny uh, more so than anything basketball. But certainly, yes, there was a lot of basketball involved. Um, and I, you know, we talked about the players on the team, Eric, including one CJ Walker, who we have not really gotten a chance to talk to Johnny about. Oh, and that's one of the big storylines for UCF basketball is CJ Walker, a five-star recruit, of course, transferring from Oregon. The question is, will he be eligible and what does he bring to the UCF program? Here was Johnny Dawkins thoughts on CJ Walker. Uh, we're hopeful that he'll be eligible. Uh, he's, he's applying for a waiver. Uh, we're excited to have CJ back home and in our program. We think he's a terrific addition. Uh, you know, just his, his versatility, you know, like we, we like to play with versatile players. He's, he's as versatile as they come. He can play outside. He can go inside. Uh, the way we defend, we think he's going to be an excellent, you know, you know, two-way player for us. His ability to defend around the rim, his ability to guard multiple positions on the perimeter, all things that we're excited about from CJ. So uh, we're fortunate to have him in our program. And that was Johnny Dawkins, of course, talking about CJ Walker. That's going to be the big storyline, Brian. I mean, five-star, we've had Michael Donald. I mean, this is a kid that could be special. Could be a huge impact, you know, and the, you know, especially with Colin Smith out for the year, uh, it's going to be significant. I think all eyes are: is he going to be eligible? We would assume yes, but you never know because with the NCAA, you just never know, right? You never know. You know, again, these things can go down to the wire. Uh, uh, look at UCF football, right? You know, we've been waiting on guys to get to get given uh, getting their waiver. For, for, for transfers to get their waiver. And, you know, we found out, you know, during the ECU game that R.J. Harvey, the, the transfer from Virginia, the running back from Virginia, uh, it, it has, has been cleared. And now we're still in for other guys. And it might, it, might take, it might take some weeks or months. We don't know. Um, so, but you're waiting. You're always waiting for that waiver to come down. And you hope it's before the season, but we'll see. I, I, I did also want to bring up that let's say, let's say C.J. is not available. Uh, and thus, you're really shorthanded at that, you know, at the the three, four, five spots, really anywhere on the floor. Because as Johnny said, CJ can play all five positions. I wanted to bring up too that he talked about Sean Mobley, 
uh, a guy who really haven't had a chance to ask him about much, uh, a transfer from VCU, and he mentioned him as a glue guy. And I remember that that, that tag has sort of been given to, to Chad Brown throughout the years, a guy who just sort of does a lot of things, uh, can, you know, is, is talented, can do multiple things, may not have one area where he stands out, but a glue guy also brings your team together. He is there as sort of a leader in the locker room, uh, and and for this kind of team, it's going to have you know a lot more new, not as many as last year, but still a lot of new faces. Uh, you're going to need a guy like Sean Mobley to not only provide on the court but off the court, and so that's something else I'm looking forward to this year. It really is, uh, and I know you know getting all these pieces together is going to be fascinating, Murph. Kind of like you know the chemistry and all that. It's going to be very interesting. Of course, the question is when will we see these guys play a game? Well, Johnny Dawkins shared with us on Monday kind of the thinking as far as the schedule is concerned. Never been this late in, in, in the season still trying to figure out what our schedule is going to look like. But, you know, that's just another, that's just the world we're living in right now. Uh, for us, it's, it's going to be a situation where uh, we have the 20 league games. We're trying to plan an MTE. Uh, we're working on that. And we're fortunate because Disney's right here and they have a number of them. And they're, I think they're consolidating them, bringing them all here. So uh, we're looking to see kind of where we'll stand in that situation. I'm hopeful that we'll get one of those spots and we'll be able to play there, which will be great. Uh, that still limits our travel, which is excellent. And then we're looking at still playing some of the games that, that we have on, on schedule. Like I think we open up with Oklahoma, for instance. So we have them on the 28th. We open up with them. Uh, you know, we also have Florida State this year. So, we, you know, we play them. We would go up to Florida State to play. Uh, so those are two of our games. And, and we have Michigan. So Michigan is the only game that we have. If we, you know, with those three that are out of the state. So uh, we're trying to hopefully keep our travel down, as you can imagine, and, and uh, as best we can and uh, look forward to, you know, those, those early season, preseason games, but also looking forward to conference play. We have a great conference, a lot of talent and uh, a lot of parity and excited about that as well. All right. That was Johnny Dawkins right there uh, talking about the schedule, Murph. And boy, that was more newsworthy there. Um Pretty exciting, the 20 conference games, which we already kind of knew about. But the non-conference league, that deserved a yo. Yeah, I will tell you guys this. Uh, no one on that Zoom call knew that UCF was playing Oklahoma this year. And you go, well, it's a home-and-home home from last year. Like, no, it wasn't. Uh, not, that I, not that I know about or anybody else knew about. That was a one-off from last year at Norman. They were then going to open their season – uh, you know, and, and before going into a to a team event in Connecticut, but Oklahoma was not part of their off season their their non conference schedule, and so all of a sudden they're going to play Oklahoma to start the season on November twenty eighth. That gave me the sort of like uh, surprise dog selling, like oh, like uh, what, what's this? Um, yeah, that was that was something, and then so you've got Oklahoma, Florida State. Michigan, and we knew about Florida State and Michigan. We've known about Michigan for a couple months, uh, and we knew about Florida State about a week, a week ago once it was reported by John Rothstein. And so, just of those three games alone, not knowing what the rest of your conference, what the rest of your non-conference schedule looks like, those three games alone uh, are that's pretty heady competition. And then, obviously, like Johnny said, UCF, you know, is looking to add a multi-team event here in Orlando. Remember, they were they were in one. They were in the Hall of Fame tip-off at Mohegan Sun, but they they flipped with with Temple. Uh, obviously, due to travel reasons, you don't want to be traveling up to Connecticut at this time. So UCF will stay down here. 
They will play in a multi-team event in Orlando. By the way, there are eight of them, eight of them playing in Disney. So they're not in one yet, but they will be. And they've got plenty of options to choose from or plenty of options uh, from which to choose them. Uh, and so we'll see. And so that'll be added to their season. That'll be added to their non-conference schedule too. And that's going to only bolster it because those team events are not, you're not going to be playing a bunch of patsies in those multi-team events. Um, you know, there's usually one team from like the mid-majors or, uh, or like the one-bid leagues. But usually you have a couple of like, you know, power conference teams in there too. Um, so it's a pretty impressive non-conference slate that Johnny Dawkins has put together here, not to mention obviously playing twice a year against the likes of Memphis, Houston, Wichita State, you know, so on and so forth. It's impressive. I mean, it could be one of the most impressive non-conference schedules I've ever remember. You see a basketball program putting on the court. Oklahoma, by the way, they're ranked 41st in John Rothstein's top 45. He does a top – John Rothstein, by the way, nobody lives and breathes college basketball like John yeah. Rothstein, man. This guy, you just he's a follow. Like, if you ever follow him, he is breaking down team schedules, dates. I mean, he's out of his mind. 365 a year. Uh, he's got a top 45, and he's got Oklahoma in there. They're kind of a middle-of-the-pack Big 12 team, which is arguably the one of the top leagues. Obviously, it is one of the top leagues in college basketball. Florida State yeah. is going to be a contender again in the ACC. They're defending regular season champions. Leonard Hamilton, I believe, has the number one recruiting class coming in. So they're like a top, they're going to be a top 25 team in Michigan with Jawan Howard in his second year there at Michigan's head coach up there in Ann Arbor. That's a that's amazing to me. Um uh, with that slate, that that is a remarkable non-conference. It's unfortunate <laughs> with the circumstances that we're dealing with because we can't like plan ahead because we just don't know all the specifics yet of how this is all going to work, right? Right, we don't, uh, and no one does. You know, Johnny talked about early in early in the year about like not really sure how this is all going to work. What sort of like what what is a home game going to look like? What 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 does traveling to Memphis look like for them? Uh, yeah, all of those details will be ironed out as every well, really, well as football has had to do, and as, as every sport will do, as we carry on through the winter and definitely into the spring, where we have every sport basically happening at once. Uh, they're going to figure it out sort of as we go, and basketball is no different. Yeah, and then you got the 20 conference games. Do you like the 20 conference games? I know we touched on this uh, in recent episode. Uh, I've been told, by the way, that's not a lock to, like, that might be just a one-year thing. That's not a lock to happen every moving forward. I think they're going to use it this year because of the circumstances, but there are some people that have told me that they may not do that moving forward because they think that actually the 20 conference games hurts teams' RPIs at the top because you're playing the bottom teams a couple times. Right, but like, but it gives you a chance to play every team in the conference twice. Right, and in this league, you know, in this league, even on a even on a decent year, you can have five or six really good teams, like top tops, you know, sixty top seventy RPI teams. Um, so I, you know, getting the, getting those type of wins, you know, or at least two chances of those type of wins matter. And so I would rather have two shots there. Uh, and, and trying to get two of those wins, then you know, oh well, you have to play. You have to also play East Carolina twice. No shot to East Carolina, but you know, you know what it's been like. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, that that's going to drive down your RPI a bit. But you should still win those games. At least those games should still be wins. And now you get two shit. You get two chances 
at each of the at each of the big dogs. And I, I love this. I love the even scheduling. Um, I I I, you know, I hope it stays. I really enjoy it. I do too. i just heard that there's you know that could not may not be the case. We'll see. I think they got to see how it plays out and how all that plays out. One of the other storylines to keep in mind, by the way, in this league. On Wednesday, Penn State head coach Pat Chambers resigned from his head coaching position after an internal investigation. There were some allegations uh, against him and some uh, inappropriate behavior from him. And and, you know, and the reason I bring all that up, Murph, is there's currently an investigation on one of the marquee programs in the league in Wichita State. They're investigating Greg Marshall. Oh, baby. <laughs> I don't know. Like – do we have? I'm sure this podcast has been going on for an hour and a half now, and I'm sure fans are really enjoying me telling them that as they're listening to me drone on for a few more seconds. But yeah, Trace loves really, it. Trace is a big fan of the, the Trace, Lindsay podcast. Trace, shout out to you. You absolutely love this. Uh, do Do we have the time to in, like to really examine the breadth of what Greg Marshall is up against? Because if, if, for those of you who don't know, just go ahead and go on Twitter. There's plenty of articles from The Athletic and I think from Watch Stadium uh, about the investigations into Greg Marshall. And they range from uh, abhorrent, horrifying, uh, the racist, uh, evil, uh, gross, disgusting. Uh, it really, I mean, it, 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 is, it is the... It is, he covers all the bases of bad. And, uh, hey, look, Wichita State really owes the last 10-plus uh, years of their program to him. They've had tremendous success in, in really, you know, the, you know Wichita uh, because of him. Bringing in recruits uh, and bringing that program to national prominence, a Final Four, all that stuff. But if it came with all this... Uh, I it's hard to say it was worth it, and the fallout could be could be deep. Oh man, it was it's it's bad. It doesn't look good. That could be a, that, that's a significant story in college basketball, not just in the American. We're going to be following that because that could we might have a similar result there, right? Where we're going to be talking in a future episode, Murph, about Greg Marshall's dismissal at Wichita State. I have a feeling that's where this is headed, right? It's got to be. I mean, how I mean, how does it not? They, you know, you got, again, you guys got to read it. Go to the athletic. And, and and read what they and read what they've written, but there are so many voices on the record from so many different from so many different Wichita State teams, not just one team, but like so many different years of Wichita State. And then they went to his previous job at Winthrop and got similar allegations from players at Winthrop. And it and and then you know Greg Marshall put out this statement a couple weeks ago, not really apologizing or being <laughs> contrite for anything, just saying that you know. I, I, I've never been abusive, and yeah, my my you know my coaching tactics are hard, but I love my players. Like that doesn't really help you, Greg. Uh, it's a it, it is pretty shocking how he sort of he's sort of standing up against all of this when there are now dozens of people on the record, or you know almost two dozen people on the record uh, saying like yeah he was abusive and demeaning and did some really awful things. Yep, unfortunately. So uh, monitor that, and uh, we probably will react to this again. This will be the last time you hear about this story, but this is lurking uh, in the shadow. Wichita State, Wichita State better hurry up. They only got about five weeks before the season starts. So <laughs> either either you, you, you make a decision now and, and scramble to find a head coach, or you let this drag on into the season, and it's a distraction everywhere you go. 
Yeah, and who knows? Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday night, by the way. So this is during the World Series. Uh, game two is going on, and it's a doozy, of course, because, you know, the blowout could not have happened when we were recording. It's got to be an exciting game, Murph. But I only bring it up because you wrote about this World Series preview because it's got a UCF uh, tie into it. Yes, it does, uh, Eric. Chad Matola, who, by the way, what was his ranking on on your greatest male coaches of all time? I believe it was like 13? Greatest athletes, Matola, male athletes greatest, of all 14. Athletes, it was like 13? 14. 14. Greatest, yeah. So, uh, so Chad Matola, the, uh, the 14th greatest male athlete in UCF history, according to Eric Lopez, uh, is the Tampa Bay Rays hitting coach. He uh, has brought this team uh, to, you know, the, the, the apex of the sport. Uh, and it's, um, it's just, you know, look, like I wrote in the article, if you're probably listening to this podcast or reading that article and, you have, and, and you're rooting for someone in this series, you're probably rooting for the Rays because of proximity. But if you don't care about baseball and you're only listening to this because you like UCF, uh, you should still watch the World Series because now you have someone to root for. And that is one of the best UCF baseball players of all time, if not the best, one of the best UCF male athletes of all time, and the Tampa Bay Rays hitting coach, Chad Batola. He is trying to join Drew Butera's UCF alums that played baseball at UCF to win a World Series. Drew Butera was the catcher for the Kansas City Royals, backup catcher in 2015 when the Royals beat the Mets to win the World Series. And Butera actually caught the last out of that World Series because mm-hmm. he came into that game because that was an extra inning affair. Um Yes. So that is uh, important there. You mentioned that in the article. And, uh, well, hopefully it would be a good idea if they win this game too. And by the time you're listening to this, you'll know the results. So we're not, that's all we're going to say about it. But, it, you know, it, it, uh, the good news is his offense has shown up in game two. That's what we can definitely say that, right, Murph? We can definitely, well, without definitely spoiling everything else. Uh, no, I mean, we can say as we as we talk here in the bottom of the eighth that Brandon, Brandon Lau has hit two home runs. Uh, Brandon Lau has not had a good postseason, but Brandon Lau had a fantastic regular season, really arguably uh, one of the top 20 hitters in the game this year uh, in his second season in the bigs. And you have to imagine a lot of that's due to the, the, the tutelage and coaching of Chad Matola. Chad, by the way, also, uh, we believe it's so it's so hard to know this for sure, because there are tons of coaches, you know, across, you know, Major League Baseball and different positions and different decades. But as far as we believe, Chad is the first UCF baseball alum to be coaching in the World Series as well. So Utero remains the only UCF graduate to play for the team at baseball and then also play in the World Series. Matola, the only uh, gra- the only graduate UCF baseball alum to coach in the World Series. And it's important because you bring up in the article, for example, Mike Maroff. Some in their listeners might say, wait a minute, what about Mike? I could have swore Mike Maroff, wasn't he on a team? No, right? He was on the Tigers team that made it to the World Series, but he was not on the roster, right? Is that the, the- right. right, so he was on the Tigers team that made it to the World Series in 06. He was not on their postseason roster, so he did not even pitch in the postseason. Um, that still means he got he still got a, uh, an AL championship ring because he's on the team. Um, but he did. But he didn't pitch it in the postseason. Cody Allen, who people might remember as the Indians closer for a few years in uh, in the mid-teens in 2015, 16. Uh, Cody Allen, uh, obviously the closer for the Indians in the 2016 World Series, he did pitch at UCF back in I believe 2008, 2007, 2008. But he then transferred to High Point 
um, and was really only at UCF for two years before transferring after his sophomore year. So, you know, by definition of alum, you know, it's hard to say that he counts. So, again, Butera is the first UCF baseball alum to play in the World Series. Cody Allen, not technically an alum since he did transfer two years later. Yeah, went to play, for, went to play for Greg Cozart, who's for UCF, a former pitching coach, former UCF pitcher, who's the head coach still at High Point right now. Uh, so that's where he went to play. And you're right. Those we've run into this technicality because there was some. You know, we had this with uh, Joey Graham because Jeff talked about Joey Graham and, and making the con, you know playoffs in the NBA, but he didn't train. He didn't graduate here. He transferred to Oklahoma State. Uh, if you watch the WNBA bubble, you've seen Emma Cannon play, and you're wondering, but she transferred after her junior year out of UCF women's basketball. So it's always you can't claim those from what I've been. And I've talked to people about this stuff. Uh, because I've been fascinated by it, and you can't claim it because that's not <laughs> where they finish, right? That's as simple as that. You just didn't, you know, they, they went somewhere else for whatever variety of reasons. So You can't claim it, damn it. That's what we said. No. Final. So we don't know if Chad Matola will know by the time we are on the air next week if Chad Matola is a World Series champion or just have to settle for an AL championship. Uh, one thing we do know is our good Ben, ben Lively, they're still playing, Murph. How is that possible, by the way? The KBO, which we have talked about the KBL since, what, March? I feel like. Yeah. And it's been lively, yeah. and they're still going. Unfortunately, uh, we're not going to be able to add a KBO title uh, to the UCF Alumni Association. Uh, no, unfortunately not. Since, again, as I've, as I've mentioned numerous times on this podcast, the Samsung Lions will not be making the KBO playoffs. The, again, the KBO season ends next Friday. That's the 30th of, uh, of October. Uh, so Ben might only have one more start left this season. Well, since before, since the last time we were on the air, he pitched uh, on the 17th, and it was actually really one of his worst starts in a while. Uh, gave up four runs over six innings, um, walked two guys, hit two more batters, um, just did not have good control. So uh, Ben Lively now on the year though, still doing very well. But we'll see. We'll talk about that after. His last start, which which probably will come, I believe, either on Friday or Saturday of this week, and then that could be it. Wow. We could have no more KBO in our life. How are you dealing with this? I mean, no more KBO, no no more MLB after next Wednesday. Like, what are you going to – like, I mean, this is – it's all of a sudden it's gone from you. I'm going to um, – I'm going to uh, store myself in carbonite and, and just stay there. For about six, seven months. You, are you, you confident can, you that can... ML, the Major League Baseball will be back on schedule next year? Or is that – are you questioning – and I'm not even talking about COVID. I'm talking about, like, labor issues and all that. I mean, are we optim- – I mean, should we feel well, optimistic that we'll have a next season, a full season, or no? Yeah, because, again, the, the, the labor issues don't kick in until after next season. All right. Right? So we have one more year of relative peace before – Everything hits the fan in in uh, November December of 2021. Uh, but but yeah, I do think that you will have baseball starting on time the next season. I think what this season has showed us, really since the fiasco of the Marlins in the first weekend and then the the Cardinals later, was it's been pretty good since as far as like you know not having massive outbreaks of a deadly disease. Uh, you know, you know, going ramp, running rampant through baseball teams. With that being, you know, with that being true, I think baseball has sort of found a way to put on games 
uh, as scheduled next year. I don't know if there will be, you know, full full crowds. I, I actually, at this point, I highly doubt there will be. Um, but, uh, but yes, I do believe the baseball season will start on time, probably with limited fans, and I, you know, we'll have a 162-game season. The good news is here in the state of Florida, we're used to limited fans anyway. So, right? I mean, we're at baseball games. Sure. So, you know, we, should be, we should be well equipped. Or it won't be any different. Uh, that'll be pretty much normal. Um, all right. That, that'll do it. We're, make sure you check it out. Uh, BlackingOBanneret.com. There's the NFL alumni update there that Jeremy Brenner gives us. Brashad Perriman's back, Merv. He's back. He played against for the Jets. Unfortunately, he is with the Jets, but he played. <laughs> He's playing for the Jets, unfortunately. I mean, if there wasn't a if there wasn't a sentence that si- that uh, summed up this season for the Jets, <laughs> playing for the Jets, unfortunately. Unfortunately, uh, but he's back playing among the NFL. Unfortunately, Mike Hughes re-injured uh, his neck, so that is uh, unfortunate. Yeah, that's, that's scary. I don't. I, I haven't looked. Uh, has there been any up- update on his status? Because well, they have a bye Mike week he- this week, so I don't know. I haven't heard anything beyond that. Well, because Mike Hughes has a Mike Hughes has a history of neck issues, and for him to suffer yet yeah, neck another neck injury yeah, again, I'm not yeah. sure of, of you know of the severity or type, but that's that that's that's kind of scary. Um, so yeah, it's too bad. You know, we've got uh, Mike Hughes hurt, uh, or Nakins is is banged up with a high ankle sprain and still getting over a concussion. Tristan Hill's on the IR with a torn ACL. Oh, it's been a rough few weeks here. Blake Bortles, though, now signed with the practice squad for the Broncos. Well, I mean, you know, yay. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you got for Blake? Come on. Man. Oh, God. Rough. Uh, <laughs> can, we, can we get John uh, Brown, by the way, to, like, injure his hamstring for the rest of the year so Gabe can get more action? Well, I mean, look, John Brown has a history of hamstring injuries, so certainly that's that's more than possible. Okay, uh, you know, uh, he uh, he. I mean, yes, it definitely could happen. Uh, also, Josh Allen needs to play better uh, <laughs> for, for, Gabe, for Gabe to be for Gabe to be good. Uh, but I'll I'll say it every week. Gabe has been better immediately for the Bills than I thought he would be, uh, and a lot of that is just a credit to him of just being a worker and a guy who catches on quickly, a guy who, who can just eat up playbooks. And, you know, you've, you've heard the bills rave about his professionalism and the way he goes about his work ethic. We know about his work ethic here at UCF too. Um, but for that to pan out uh, at the NFL level so quickly and for him to be seeing a lot of snaps, maybe not a lot of targets, not a lot of snaps or not a lot of stats as far as catches or yards or whatever, but certainly he's on, he's on the field a lot. Uh, I, I didn't see that coming. Uh, especially in his offense, certainly, certainly some of that's because of of Josh Allen's improvement and how the Bills' offense has changed overall. But uh, Gabe deserves a lot of credit for you know in, in his rookie year um, being being an impact player at times. He really has. Um, I think they, yeah. they they like him a lot. And when he's, the Buffalo's been on TV a lot, they've pumped, they've pumped him up a lot. And uh, so that that's yeah. been exciting to him. Uh, but yeah, Hughes got re injured the thirteen snaps. Uh, into their last game, got hurt. So that's the last we've heard there uh, with him. Yeah, but Let's see. We'll see. But uh, all right, uh, so that'll do it again. UCF Tulane, 2 o'clock, by the way. Special kick time, 2 o'clock, Murph. I know you're not against that. Uh, we could thank UFC preliminaries. Otherwise, it would have been earlier because 
They're running the UFC 254 preliminary fights will be on the deuce at noon from Fight Island in Adabi. So that's why uh, you have the 2 o'clock kick instead of probably would have been a noon kick. Nonetheless, 2 o'clock is a good time. You're going to be out there on the field. It's the most watched Twitter right now. Every pregame, Murph, all eyes are on your Twitter account to find out who's playing, who's not. Really, you're the breaking news here. Uh, well, okay. So it was only because I was in a special situation in Memphis where uh, <laughs> everyone else was sane and decided not to travel to Memphis. <laughs> so I was the only one there giving out updates. So yes, in that case, uh, I am like I am like the I, I am the 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 the, uh, the gas station on the uh, you know uh, the one street town. You have to stop over and and you know you have to you have to pay for this you know because you're you can't you can't go any further. You have to stop here. I'm your only option. Uh, and by the way, I will probably be your only option again when Houston comes oh! around on October 31st. Um, by the way, that's a that's a two o'clock Eastern Time kick too. We found out this week on ESPN uh, Plus. Can't wait to get into that debate next week. Oh boy! Look, I know fans, I know fans will be upset about ESPN Plus, but you know what? You know what matters to me? Not having any more six, seven, or eight o'clock kick kicks. Please, no more. No bueno. Do not want. Please. One o'clock, noon, two o'clock, great. Oh, put, give us give us a Pac-12 slot. Have them play at 9 a.m. Look, wow. Pac-12 can do it. <laughs> yeah. What? what? I, am, I am more than up to that. I do not want to. I am, I, I, this, is so, this is such a first world problem that no one cares about except for me. <laughs> I don't want to be in a press box after a four-hour game until 1.30. Oh, God. Oh, 2 a.m. Oh, oh, where's the world's tiniest violin? Someone please give it to me. <laughs> Are you, You're just calling out TV networks right now, huh? You're just like, hey, whatever, you know, get the... the I know. I'm calling, out, I'm, call, I'm calling out your brethren, man. I know these oh, people are close to you, but... I understand. I mean, I'm just... I'm just looking out for me, man. I'm just looking out for number one. And I, I What about I the breaking not... news? You're going to Houston. You're going to be there for the ho- in Halloween. Yeah. It, it wasn't breaking news to me. I've had those plane flights set for months. I don't think we knew this. Uh, so now <laughs> we got to really make sure we follow you now because you literally will be the only <laughs> – there will be people that would rather just follow you on Twitter than, you know, probably log into ESPN+. Plus. I encourage them to log I mean... in ESPN+, Plus, but, you know, I can't force it. <laughs> I have one already. Yes, yeah, just – just put your ESPN Plus login out on Twitter and, and just be a, be a good fan. Yeah, I don't be a good you... fan. Me, oh, Lord. You know? Where can they find you? Where they can find you because uh, you will be tweeting for four hours from the game. Actually, probably longer than four. Who knows how long you tweet. You tweet well, a lot. Well, no, because, uh, again, this podcast is now off the rails, <laughs> but whatever. We actually aren't even allowed in the stadium until two hours before kickoff. Oh, so you know, you know, pandemic. You got to cut down on those hours in the press box because we're, you know, us. I wondered why your uh, photos that you always pose your first live shot from the stadium was later than normal. Now I get it. I get it now. Yeah, yeah. UCF is actually allowing media in an uh, hour and 50 minutes. I'm not sure why it's gone down from two hours to an hour and 50, but it has. So whatever. Uh, but yeah. But anyway. This is this podcast needs to end now. Yes, it's end. We're it's a heck of a way to end it. <laughs> Just complaining, wanting Murph obliging to start kickoff times, wanting nine a.m. kickoffs. 
That's what you're... I hope you've enjoyed Brian Murphy's whining hour here on the Black and Gold Banneret. Oh my lord! Tell him where they. All right, so you're you're on Twitter. Make sure you follow Murph. He'll have all he'll t- he'll have all the details. Uh huh. And I yeah. I will be on Twitter following Murph at Eric Lopez Elo. You got any written stuff coming up? Yeah, I uh, gonna put out uh, the checklist for this week is against Tulane and uh, probably a couple other things. Uh, that I don't have a, a title for, so <laughs> it'll uh, be up there. So it'll <laughs> we'll be up there. I mean, let's be honest. I'm glad. I'm glad yeah, you're. They're, they're all it's all gold. I mean, really, <laughs> everything I write is a has a, a very Keatsian quality to it, guys. Let's be honest. It it, it that's what we would like. We need this now more than ever, Murph. We really need need this. Um, Please. So. All right, so look for that on blackandgoldbanneret.com. And, of course, on UCF, uh, UCF underscore banneret on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Hopefully you enjoy the game of Tulane. We'll have coverage. Of course, our good friend Andrew Glushoff will have the knee-jerk reactions after the game. Check that out. That's been doing very well as well. Murph will obviously have uh, post-game reactions in the locker rooms. So that's why you need to follow him on Twitter. So, for Brian Murphy, I'm Eric Lopez. We hope you've enjoyed most of this edition of the Black and Go Banneret podcast. If not all of it, why not? What else you got to do? Until next week, this has been the Black and Go Banneret podcast.